0: have your bibles if you would turn to joshua chapter 11 <clears throat> joshua chapter 11 you know one of the most uh, majestic creatures i believe in all of the animal kingdom is uh is the tiger <laughs> i know some of you think i have an ulterior motive for saying that um for many years though uh these beautiful creatures have puzzled researchers tigers have a, a remarkable ability to paralyze their prey with fear Uh, an ability unlike any of the other large cats in the animal kingdom the tiger charges towards its prey and lets out a spine chilling roar now you think that would be enough to cause the prey to turn and run for its life when they hear that roar but instead the opposite actually happens and most of the time the the prey will freeze and and become tiger bait Um, at the turn of the century uh, scientists at the Fauna Communication Research Institute of North Carolina, of all places, uh, discovered that the reason you likely freeze rather than run when a tiger chases you is because the tiger lets out a roar that's audible. You hear the roar. That's the thing that is terrifying when you hear the tiger roar. But it also lets out a, a frequency that's so low that you can't hear it, but you feel it. You feel the sound wave coming from the tiger. And so as the tiger emerges from the bush, and its, it's flashing stripes and colors capture your eye, and the sound of the roar captures your ear, and then that unheard but felt sound wave uh, pulsates and you can feel that with your body it provides an all-out assault on your senses and so as a result the effect is that the prey is momentarily paralyzed just freezes and though the tiger may not even be close enough at the moment that it lets out that roar because of the split second that it freezes it's enough that the tiger can leap on it and I thought about that and as I read that story I thought you know that's often the way our fears operate as well that in, a, in any given moment, we're paralyzed with inactivity. We're paralyzed by the thought of something or by something that comes into our lives. And, and even though that threat may not be right upon us, it may not be imminent, we still have this in our mind, we have that thought in our mind, and that fear has an effect on us in the here and now. read this week that 15 to 20% uh, of, of, of the U.S. experience phobias in their life. Uh, in the U.S., Um, 25 million Americans report having the fear of flying. That's startling to me. Uh, The most common phobias in the U.S. are fear of animals, fear of the environment, things like rain and earthquakes, tornadoes, natural disasters, uh, fear of blood or injury, uh, fear of certain situations like claustrophobia, uh, fear of traveling on bridges, fear of public speaking, those sorts of situations, and fear of death ranks among the top. And so something that we're all going to struggle with are either these phobias or situational things, things like getting laid off of work or losing our home or family members getting sick or in an accident, um, consequences that we may have for making a wrong decision. Fears are something that we're all going to struggle with at some point in our lives. We're going to come across something that induces fear in us. And so how do we deal with that? In that moment when we're paralyzed with the thought of something, how do we deal with that? And so I think our text this morning would give us some instruction Give you a little bit of of background, and then even this morning, a little bit of the big picture, right? So we've been studying through the book of Joshua, and so I want to step back and give us the 30,000-foot view for a second. Um, We've arrived in chapter 11, and so when you see that, your response may be, wow, we're halfway done. Or your response may be, man, we're only halfway done. Um, But if you're just looking at chapter numbers, you would be correct. We're about... Uh, somewhere about middle ways through, but if you were looking at sermons through the book of Joshua, we're more like 80% through the book of Joshua. Um, And the reason for that is we're about to move into, this is the last week before we move into a long section of the book, chapters 12 through 21, that'll provide a lot of historical detail, a lot of place names, a lot of people, a lot of lands that the Israelites conquer, um, and then even specifically the allotment of those lands to the different tribes. Remember, the people of Israel are moving in, and this land is their possession. It's their inheritance, and so you're going to see those lands divided up. Um, and all of it, this is God's word, and it's important to us, and it's true, and it's right, but the way that it's laid out allows us to pick up the pace a little bit, and so we'll study several chapters at a time. And then we'll get to chapter 22 through 24 and we'll slow back down a little bit and look at the the, the closing of Joshua's life and final speeches that he gives the people. And we'll move a little slower there. But this morning, to remind you where we've been in the last few weeks, Joshua and the Israelites have defeated the inhabitants of the southern region of the Promised Land. Um, They've returned back to their what seems to be home base of Gilgal near, near Jericho. And they're on a roll at this point. I mean, God's doing incredible things. God's uh, giving them the land that he's promised them, even up against incredible uh, enemies and and foes. And there's a lot of rejoicing and celebrating and recommitting to God's law uh, through these victories. And they've moved back to Gilgal Gilgal for some rest, to recuperate a little bit, to rejoice. But all of that's about to come to an abrupt halt because there's a bigger challenge arising uh, for Israel in the northern part of the Promised Land. So if you picture them crossing the Jordan River and a map being here, they go in sort of about midways and conquer Jericho and Ai. Then the southern kingdom was what we saw last week. But the, the northern kingdom, the northern part of the Promised Land is, uh, is stirring. And so that's what we'll see in Joshua chapter 11 this morning. So th- sort of main idea, I'll give you that main thought from the beginning that we're going to see in this text. And then we'll have four sort of points to help us walk through the text And See it before us, but sort of main idea for us is that our fears are resolved when we trust in God's promises and obey God's word Our fears resolved when we trust God's promises and obey God's word So number one, you see this in verses 1 through 5, you see their predicament, you see what Israel is up against And specifically it's a great horde, the text says, that have set their sights on Israel um, if that's starting to sound a bit like deja vu to you, that's intentional, right? You're coming up against these almost every week where a group of kings or a group of cities will come together and, and form a coalition against Israel. And, and the writer of Joshua is giving that to us with purpose. This repetition is intentional that you would hear this and hear this and hear this and just see the circumstances that that Israel's is facing. Um, and so you will hear this again as, as groups from the northern part of the kingdom are arising against Israel. Look at verses Uh, One through five with me. And when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Atshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern uh, northern hill country in the uh, Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in uh, Naphtor to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. There's all the peoples, verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And these kings joined forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel." King Jabin of Hazor is a powerful guy. Um, We learn later in the text that uh, his city, Hazor, and and this king here, of all the city-states that are allied together now to fight against Israel, he's the one in charge. He's leading this thing. And for this time period, this was a massive place. uh, 200-plus acres encompassing uh, the city, 40,000-plus in population. So for this time, this this is a happening place. And Jabin hears about how Israel just whooped this southern region, this southern part of the... You guys know that word, whooped, right? Is that like a redneck losing <laughs> it? Good? All right, yeah. good. They, they, they hand it to the southern part of the promised land, and as a result, Jabin hears about it, and he's like, Hey, boys, we're next. They're, they're going to turn their sights towards us. We've got to do something. They're headed north. They're going to conquer the rest of the land. We've got to do something. If, if ever, now is the time. And so he begins to amass an army of, out, of, out of all the remaining city-state that had not been destroyed, uh, he amasses this army to fight against Israel. Which, let me remind you, I think we pass over this so often because of how frequently Israel is winning in, in the book of Joshua. This is not a trained militia. Israel is not a, a group of, of professional fighters and soldiers. Uh, they're, they're a group of second-generation nomadic slaves. I mean, a generation before, they were, they were wandering in the wilderness. A generation before that, they were in Egypt as slaves. And yet these, these groups, these city-states are, are, are bringing uh, all their forces together and, and joining as allies to fight against them. And so get this picture as you, as you read this text. Uh, there's a group, uh, Israel's back regrouping at Gilgal. They're back at their home base. And as they're sort of recuperating, resting from the, the previous battles, verse 4 tells us that a great horde and a number like that on the, the sand of the seashore, um, they're, they're way outnumbered. They're their first disadvantage is that they're, they're way outnumbered. Verse 4 again tells us that they have very many horses and chariots. Israel, to our knowledge, doesn't have this sort of technology, this sort of modern warfare. We know that Egypt did, and, and Pharaoh pursued Egypt. And you remember what happened there, so much for those chariots. But this, this group seems to be outmatching Israel with their, their technology, their warfare. So there's disadvantage number two. If you skip down to verse 22, we're not there yet, but you'll see mention of uh, the, the Anakim. If you, if you know anything about them, it's an interesting group of people. They're sort of mysterious in that we don't know a ton about the Anakim, uh, but we know that they're huge. They're giants. They're, they're people that were bred for war. So large, in fact, that when the ten spies originally went into, or uh, the twelve that went originally to spy out the land in the book of Numbers, ten of them came back and said, nope, <laughs> can't do it, won't do it. Those guys are huge. They'll demolish us. It can't be done. And that's what led to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that God would say, you're not trusting me. You're not being obedient to what I've already told you. But it's these Anakim that caused them to fear and to tremble and to turn back and to doubt what God could do. So these are sort of the incredible hulks of the land. Uh, In Israel's dictionary, if you would look up the word fear or terror, there's a picture of the Anakim right there on the page. That's who they were afraid of. They've already proven that to us in the Old Testament. These were some bad dudes. And so disadvantage number three, not only are they outnumbered, not only are they outmatched militarily as far as from a weapon standpoint, they're outmatched because they have giants fighting against them. I mean, have you ever wondered why the writer of Joshua spends so much time giving us all these details? I mean, the first three verses are, are just names and places. And you wonder, like, why, why would the writer go to such a such long task of giving us kings and places and cities that seem to don't, they don't impact us like maybe they would have them. Why would the writer of scripture do that? Why would the writer waste so much ink giving us all these details? Why couldn't he just make the, you know, save some paper and make our Bibles a little lighter by saying King Jabad called some buddies together and they, they launched a massive attack against Israel? And that seems to be a simpler way of saying that. Well, if he would, if he did, the text would lose its punch. The point is that you would read it and hear it line by line as you read the text of scripture, an extended detailed description of what Israel's up against. The hopelessness that, that that Israel probably would have had as they faced this incredible army, this incredible foe that was coming against them. And I think oftentimes, church family, we need to realize that the Bible wants to impress our imaginations rather than just merely give us information for our brains. The Bible wants us to see this picture, to feel the weight of this, to, from a human perspective, feel how, how devastating this, this picture was as they probably looked over the hill at Gilgal and saw this army gathering and thought, Good night. Again? I thought we were done with this. We just defeated a coalition of armies, and now we've got another group forming against us? You think maybe they were tempted to run? Maybe anywhere but here, Lord? Can we go anywhere but here? Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever dealt with something in life, something that that you were facing that seemed impossible to win, something that was so daunting and so heavy that you thought this is never going to work out? Maybe you're there now. Maybe you're in the midst of a situation even this week where you're thinking, I don't know how this is going to play out. It seems to be a lose-lose situation. If I go this route, it's bad. If I go this route, it's bad. Maybe even worse. I don't know how to even turn here, God. I remind you this morning that God's word is given to us to show us that the battles we face in life, the things that we deal with on a daily basis are real and they're important. They're not just trivial things. From a human perspective, it, it seems impossible to win. And oftentimes it does in our lives as well. And the reality is, from a human perspective, from a human standpoint, it may be. (laughs) That's the thing. It may actually be impossible from a human perspective. But praise be to God, human strength, human perspective, human wisdom is not the source of our victory. And that's what we'll see for Israel. And that's what we'll see over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. Joshua's well aware of this truth. that, That human strength, human wisdom is not what he's relying upon. And so he knows where to turn he knows where to go to see how to handle this great horde that's stacking against them, which is point number two. See their plan, and that, it's that, that, that God is the one who calls the shots. Their plan was to rely upon God, who is the one who calls the shots. Look at verse 6. There's so much truth in verse 6. It says this, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give, them, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And what do you know? It is possible to learn from your mistakes. This time, Joshua inquires of the Lord before rushing into battle. We've already, we've already, we've already watched Joshua make this mistake before, right? That he would go and, and be confronted by the Gibeonites and make an agreement, make a deal with them without inquiring of the Lord. We saw that what it cost them, what, what that disobedience led to. This time he doesn't. He doesn't rush in anything. He goes and prays before the Lord, and the Lord gives him a word. Even when this army seemed to be pressing in around him, and we know that it's already forming against him, Joshua takes time to be with the Lord, to hear from God. And he goes before the Lord, and the Lord lays out a battle plan and gives him three actions, three steps in this verse six that you see. Three steps that, that we'll point out real quickly as we walk through the text. Something like this Number one, it says, Don't be afraid. It's a command. It's imperative. Don't be afraid. How many times must the Lord remind them and us of this truth? Don't fear. It's a a command. This was a choice Joshua had to make, a choice to trust and not fear. He could either, one, spend all of his time thinking about how well-equipped this army was that was coming up against them, how, how big they were, all the technology they had and those chariots. He could sit around and imagine the worst possible scenarios. Picturing Israel slaughtered out on the battlefield, picturing his brothers fighting along beside him, slaughtered out on the... He could picture that. He could let that come into his heart and mind. Or he could refuse to let his mind go there and instead not fear. He could could actively put aside fear. That's what he's being commanded to do. Joshua, do not fear. It's a command. Second thing, in verse 6, he says to him, Focus on the promises. Focus on what you've already been told. Well, what are those promises? Well, last week, we were told that that God would fight for Israel, that he would give their enemies into their hands. We saw that in chapter 10, that he actually did that, that he was the one fighting for Israel with these hailstones that came down and did more damage than the whole army of Israel could do. We've already seen God say that and do that. He promised and he kept his promise. This week, verse 6, he says this, Tomorrow at this time I will give over... All of them slain to you, Israel. I'll give them to you. And so Joshua, don't be afraid. Actively put aside fear. And second, focus on what I've told you. Focus on this, this promise that I've given you. I'm giving you the land. And these enemies that look so incredible, I'm going I'm to hand them over to you. And then number three, third thing that, that happens here in this text. This is he's telling them. Put action behind God's instruction. Put action behind what I've told you. In verse 6, you see these words, you shall. It's key to us that God's about to tell Joshua to do something. And what he says is, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Well, what in the world is that? What is that about? I read one commentary that said, you know, this is the the cutting of the tendons, right, on the back of the horse's leg, uh, and it renders the animal incapable of speed. And so while they would be still productive for... Um, for, for, as a pack animal or, or useful for a, a plow they would be ineffective for battle so you hear that and you're like man that, that stinks why, why would God do that to these animals right you have to trust the Lord here that he, that he knew what he was doing that something was going on here and it seems that his purposes in all this the reason these horses would be handstrung, it would prevent even the possibility that these animals these weapons would ever be used to wage war against God's people again It's not killing them it's using them in a a productive and helpful way but they would not be used to to come against and kill God's people ever again note too (laughs) note also that he didn't permit Israel to seize these animals these chariots and these horses and use them for their upcoming battles he didn't say hey you just go capture those horses and chariots and then you use that weaponry that you don't have on your enemy you think well man wouldn't they be better equipped if they had kept those weapons right like that's, that's what you do on video games when you kill a guy. You get his weapon, and you get to use it, right? Like, why didn't he get to use this, this weapon that they just took? No. God's reminding them, and us today, he didn't want them to rely on earthly wisdom and techniques for victory. He didn't need a horse and chariot. He can provide victory. He wanted them to rely on his strength alone in this conquest. Later in David, uh, David uh, says in Psalm uh, chapter twenty, Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Think about how differently that verse would have been had these guys went and captured these horses and chariots. We trust in chariots and horses sometimes. We also trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's nothing against horses and chariots here, but God's wanting them to rely upon his strength. He's wanting them to to, to trust that he can provide the battle, uh, the victory in the battle for them supernaturally as he has over and over and over again. He wants them to be confident in his promises. And so what do we learn here? How do we apply this text? Uh, Certainly, I don't think any of us are tempted tomorrow to go cut the hamstrings of some horses in an effort to be obedient to God's word. So how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, friends, we do the same. We reject fear by refusing to dwell on the what ifs of life. We refuse to just be sitting around and thinking about what could happen And this is an active choice we make. It's a hard choice because we naturally want to go there. We naturally want to weigh these things out and go, gosh, but this could be terrible. This could be awful. It takes effort not to go down the what-if road. But God calls us instead to actively dwell on his promises that he's fighting for us, that he's the one who's going before us every day in the battles of our lives. He's the source of our victory and not us. That he'll give us what we need. He'll give us every step of the way. He'll give us courage to be obedient to his word. If we're just sitting around all the time thinking about the the worst-case scenarios, then we lose the battle before it ever begins. You've just disengaged from what God's called you to do. You've disengaged from obedience because you're sitting around wondering, man, how could this thing really go terribly? God's called us to faith in action. Faith in action. And so if you're worried about an upcoming doctor's visit, go and share Jesus with someone. If you're worried about being laid off at work, go care for widows in our church family. If you're you're worried about losing your home, go and spend an afternoon at Kennedy Children's Home caring for orphans. God's been clear in Scripture to give us commands. And in the moment of our fear, in the moment of our anxiety and our worry, go and do something in the Word of God that he's commanded you to do that's clear cut, black and white in Scripture. You know how you fight fear, obedience and trust and faith in what he's already told you. It's a demonstration that that he's the one who's Lord and sovereign over your life and you're walking in faith. You're walking in obedience to what he's already told us. Trust his promises and obey his word. Number three. (coughs) Number number three, see their action. It's complete obedience to God's plan. Their action in this text, complete obedience to God's plan. Look at verses 7 through 15. And so Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misfit, Misfit, I'm going to let you guys have that one. And eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left, none remaining. And Joshua did them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. In all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. Just as, Joshua, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of those cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had completely destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What we see in this text clearly over and over emphasized to us is that there is complete fulfillment, complete obedience to what God had commanded. I mean, think about the the summary here or the fulfillment of verse 6. The verse 6 is where we see this pattern. Don't fear and the the, the steps in being obedient, these steps that that God's told them to take. And then in in this longer section, in 7 through 15 here, we see these uh, fulfillment of verse 6. Joshua and Israel rejected fear. They believed the promise. They engaged in the battle exactly like God commanded. And God brought the victory just like he promised. It happens exactly like he said because they're obedient to the point that he said. And the emphasis and thrust in these verses is complete obedience. Let me show you this. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. Verse 12. And all the cities and those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Man, I want to talk about obedience to God's word. this This is complete obedience that we see from Joshua in this text. Sure, he made mistakes along the way, and certainly he'll make mistakes after this moment and in the rest of his life. But in this moment in Israel's history, in this great battle, at this point in the text of Joshua, it's complete obedience. He's completely obeying what God told him. He's taking the time to study and know and immerse himself in God's commands so that he can ensure that not, that not one part of it would be neglected. He's absorbed and internalized God's word. The instruction that God had given Moses about the promised land. Verse 15, he left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, friends, that could only be possible if he were living and breathing God's word, if he was reading and studying and memorizing and meditating upon God's word. So here's a man who's leading Israel in military uh, conquest, who's leading an army of people, but he's yet taking time to apply and analyze and commit to memory God's word so that his daily choices are fulfilling everything God said. Are you catching on to what I'm, I'm, I'm saying here? You don't stumble into obedience. It's not like one day you're just just walking along and you trip and fall and you go, hey, look, I'm obedient to God. No, friend. You have to know God's word. You have to understand it and read it and take it in so that you can be sure that that you're following his word. There's no way to follow unless you know what it says. That's what Joshua was demonstrating to us. He's heard the word of God. He's taken it in so that he could do just as the Lord said. Regardless of, of, of the leader that he's become and how busy he's been, he's still continuing in these commitments, these disciplines, so that he can know the word of God. The same is true for our lives. It takes work. It takes commitment and effort. It, you have to be a person of the word of God, a man or woman of the book. You have to know what God's commanded to be obedient to what God's commanded. A consumer of the Bible, of his word. How in the world can you trust his promises if you don't know what they are? How in the world can you be obedient to his commands if you've never read them? This is what Joshua's demonstrating to us. And and watch how incredible this is. Watch God's attention to detail here. Look at verse 7. Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them at the waters of Merom. You say, okay, how is that important? Why does that matter? Well, where is Merom? We're not entirely sure where the exact city is, but we know that it's in upper Galilee. Okay, well, why is that important? Well, upper Galilee is approximately 4,000 feet above sea level. You say, okay, well, Matt, where are you going with all this? Remember the one technological advantage that this massive army had? They had chariots and horses. They had weaponry that was, that was unmatched in this day, except for this location at this elevation was not conducive to chariot maneuvering. And so go back in your mind when you learned how to roller skate or rollerblade and you're starting to get some confidence, and you're going pretty quick, and you're making your way down your asphalt road or your concrete driveway, and you hit a rock or a small pebble, and bam, you're on your face in no time. That's the picture of these chariots and these horses in a, in a place like this, in this sort of terrain, in this sort of, uh, of area. And The army and the chariots that they had, which were their, their, their advantage, is basically a disadvantage at this point. Because, and, and listen why, verse 7, because of Joshua and his warriors, they came upon them suddenly. Joshua blitzed them. Joshua hit them so quickly they had no opportunity. This army that was amassed against them had no opportunity to dictate where the battle would take place so they could use their best advantage, their best weapon, these chariots. And here's the thing. I think we learned two things here about obedience. Number one, delayed obedience is not obedience at all. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If Joshua would have delayed, if Joshua would have sat and wondered the what-ifs for another couple days, or if Joshua would have sat and wondered, man, how, what's the worst-case scenario here, and, and just sorted all this thing out and wrestled with this fear and wallowed in this anxiety and, and, and delayed, then who's to say that this, this coalition of armies couldn't have dictated where this fight happened and, and Israel could have taken a terrible blow? But he attacked them suddenly. There was hastiness in his obedience. He was not delaying, but he attacked them suddenly and caught them exactly where God had intended. There's no delayed obedience here. There's no such thing. Second, I think we see, is that just because God promises victory, it's not a reason for us to turn our brains off. right? Just because God's promised to be with us and protect us and guide us doesn't mean we get to flip our brain off and make stupid decisions. And this was clever. This was well-reasoned. He had, he had planned this out, and it was faithful. It was obedient to God's promise and to God's word. But, but the scheme, militarily, was, was genius. It was great. Let's strike them when they can't use their, be- their best weapon, their greatest tool against us. And so obedience to every command, completely to God. We must know his word. We must be quick to obey. Before we move to our last point, I want to mention something Because I think it comes up here again in the book of Joshua, and we've dealt with this already, but if you're new to Poplar Spring or if you've missed maybe the Sunday that we first dealt with this, this idea of devoting entire peoples to destruction, I want to just recap real quickly. Um, You may think, well, hey, this is all great for Israel. It's great that they're, they're doing so well, but what about the peoples, what about those groups, those inhabitants of the lands that were just annihilated, that were just wiped out? I mean, everyone that breathed, the text says, why would God not only allow and condone that, but even command that masses of people be devoted for destruction? That seems incredibly cruel, right? You can go back and listen to the sermon where we first dealt with that. It's online, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But the quick answer is this, that God had given these people hundreds of years to repent of their sins and turn from their wickedness. And not just wickedness, but the Bible tells us great wickedness. I mean, there's sexual perversions in Le- Leviticus 18 that are spelled out with... A lot of detail. There, there are child sacrifices that we see in Deuteronomy 20 that's happening. Just a just a, a group of people that were so far from the Lord in wickedness. God actually holds off His judgment. He actually delays His judgment for a long time, and until the point where their sin reaches a level where God says, "I'll no longer wait." It's come to fruition. Your your sin has come to completion, and He uses Israel to judge these nations. He uses Israel as the weapon to inflict His judgment upon this vile group of people he could have used a flood he could have used famine he could have sent fire from heaven he did send ice missiles right last week but he's simultaneously keeping his promise to Israel he's giving them a land which he promised them generations before and so he's promised to judge and he's promised to give a land and he's doing the same thing through Israel he's doing the, that that both of those things at the same time through Israel so when you read text like this these are not nice little innocent Canaanites that Israel's destroying They're tribes of people that have for years and generations stuck their finger in the face of God and said, we will not change from our sin. And in fact, we'll only increase in it. And so all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, you see this command that God's God's promised that he would judge the Canaanites for their wickedness. And now he's doing it through Israel. Number four, our fourth point, fourth and final point. <clears throat> you see the result of all of this, and it's that Israel gets to rest. And then I put in parentheses in my notes, for a little while, right? The result of all of this is that Israel gets rest from war for a little while. Look at verses 16 through 23. And so Joshua took all that land, the hill country, all the Negev, to the land of Goshen and the lowland, and the Arabah to the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak which rises toward Seir as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they, should not come, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from the hill country of Judah, and all of the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities, And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. And so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel among their tribal allotments. And the land had rest for more. What we see in these verses is a great summary of all that God's done in the last several weeks for us. But um, you have to remember this has been years for Joshua and for Israel. But listen to this summary. Real quick, six things that are summarized here in this, as as a reminder to us as readers of Joshua. He took all the land. He captured all the kings and put them to to death. The Israelites took all in battle. Uh, He cut off from the land the Anakim, those that originally uh, scared Israel from even coming into the land. He gave the land as an inheritance for Israel, and the land had rest from war. So that's a summary of those verses and what's taking place here, and the results are pretty staggering. It's pretty incredible what God's done with this group of nomads. But notice that it didn't happen instantaneously. God's people didn't just pray, and then God instantly hurled down fire and brimstone and took the land for them, and they just moved in uh, while you know relaxing, moisturizing their hands or something. He called them to engage in battle with him. Vigorous, challenging, risky warfare that lasted for many years. Verse 18 shows us that Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. Later in Joshua, from the, our best estimates, this period of time was five to seven years for all of this to happen. I mean, it's hard for us to, to picture this because we read through it in uh, maybe a minute, minute and a half for us to read through this, this text. This is five to seven years for them. This is continued obedience over a period of time. So let this be an encouragement for you today. I think the word of God is meant to encourage our hearts. Our battle's that we face daily, that you'll face in 2019 as we have a new year approaching us, our battles are rarely won instantaneously. Instead, they take perseverance and endurance and patience. And we trust God and we continue, continually seek his wisdom and we obey his word, even when it seems like it's taking forever, even when it's hard and we don't see the end of it and, in our, and the circumstances are overwhelming and they're pushing against us and it seems like no ground is being made, yes, God's at work. Yes, he's at work. He's at work in your life. But it may still take many days of of washing your face and brushing your teeth and taking out the trash and attending classes and doing laundry. In the midst of God working, we continue in the the, the day-to-day things, the tasks that just seem mundane to us. Like, they have no importance spiritually for us. They're they're the things that we're to continue in and being faithful. And we see another truth in this text, and I think we should not quickly pass over it. Of all the cities... Of all the kings, of all the peoples that Israel encountered, the text is clear to us to, to point out that only one group surrendered to God, surrendered to God's people, and, and, and received mercy. And that's Gibeon, the Hivites. All the rest chose to fight. All of the rest chose to resist instead of surrender. And you may have noticed, if you're paying attention as we read, that the Lord caused this. It's very clear in verse 20. Verse 20, read with me again. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts That they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. You say, well, they didn't have a choice? Well, did the people in the flood? Once God had decided to bring judgment and the doors of the ark were were shut, did they have a choice in that matter? These Canaanite peoples, the, the time for mercy had ended. The time for repentance had ended. And all that remained was a time for God to pour out his judgment on their sins, on their many and great sins. And so the Lord hardened their hearts so that he could carry out his judgment. In commentary by Davis on this passage, he, he speaks to this, and I think it's heavy and it's weighty, but it's good for us. He says this, Do we not find this disturbing or offensive or even outrageous? Who gave God the right to be that sovereign? And He says this, But our accusation better remain stuck in our throats. Don't try to evade the clarity of this text. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is precisely the point. Do you think you can escape God by running to the New Testament? You'll meet the same God there, see Hebrews 3. You would do better to tremble and to worship. May this be a wake-up call, this part of the text, for anyone here today who's hiding or resisting God. Anyone who's refusing his offer of mercy through repentance. Anyone who would would, would continue to to, to not trust God and give Christ their life and trust Jesus' finished work on the cross. Listen, God has went to incredible, the greatest lengths imaginable so that he can show us mercy instead of judgment. He's went to the most incredible lengths imaginable. He sent his own son, Christ, who lived a perfect life to die upon a cross and take the penalty for sin that we deserve. That's how much he wanted to show us mercy instead of judgment. And that desire sent, motivated him to send his own son. And if we would trust Christ for salvation, repent of our sins, we'll be saved. This enables, Christ's death on the cross enabled a holy God. This is how much he desired to show us mercy rather than judgment. It enabled a holy God through Christ's death to look at our sin and say, It's forgiven. It's forgiven because my son took their sin. He did it on the cross. But friends, make no mistakes. God has been relentlessly patient in offering the free gift of salvation for thousands of years, but there will be a day when that offer of mercy is gone. And just as quickly as it was gone for the Canaanites, and just as quickly as it was gone for those at the flood in Noah's time, there will be a day when there is nothing left except the carrying out of his judgment. And on that day, it will be too late. When that day comes, it will be too late. Don't let that be you. Don't find yourself on that day not having surrendered. Whether he decides to come back or whether he decides to take you out of this world, when that day comes, it will be too late. If you are here today, it is not too late. He still offers you mercy instead of judgment through Christ. Through Christ being born that we celebrate at Christmas, but through his death and resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter, he says, come, if you would confess your sins Call upon me for salvation. You will be saved. That's the promise of scripture. Give your life to Christ today before it is too late. Like it was for these Canaanites. Because at that day their hearts were hardened and there was no turning. And we see the result real quickly. Verse 23. And the land had rest from war. Again, parentheses, at least for a little while. I say that at least for a little while because this earthly rest was only short-lived. You see, Israel would fail again. They would sin again. They would be conquered in battle again. But for this time, they had a rest. They got to relax. And it points us to it. It reminds us, it points us to the New Testament where we're told that there is an eternal rest coming in the presence of God for those that are a part of his people. For those that surrender their lives to Christ, he's coming again to receive his church and take them to be with him where there will be a forever, never-ending rest. And it's going to be good. It's going to be so much better than this world and the fears that we deal with on a daily basis are going to be gone. Nothing more to be afraid of. Nothing more to have anxiety about as we're in the presence with our Savior, looking face to face with the one who died for us. Oh, that rest is coming, friend, and it's going to be a good day. Let's pray together.